This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. It is a podcast. I I know, I give myself a glowing introduction here. We we have a a fantastic guest today. When when I started the show, I had I, I wrote down a list of names of people I knew in this Beatle world that I was thinking it'd be really cool if I someday had them on my show. And the guest you're about to hear from is one of those names who was on that list. Would you please welcome author extraordinaire? I I don't even know how to give a proper introduction because you know he, he's done so much. Bruce Spizer, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Sorry if that introduction was a little lackluster. Well, that's all right. I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a no frills podcast. That's quite all right. So, so how are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm down here in New Orleans, which fortunately uh, was not hammered by Hurricane Laura. So, so that's a good thing. So we're we're safe and sound. We did get a bit of a rain after it passed by, uh, but very, very fortunate. Well, a bit of a bit of rain's a, a bit better than a hurricane. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, kind of a non-Beatles related question first. Have you been listening to, or what kind of music have you been listening to these days besides the Beatles? Well, you know, I, I listened to a lot of music from the '60s and also '50s and '70s because that was, you know, the, the framework that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. As far as new music, every now and then something will come out and grab my attention, um, you know, and uh, uh, I had to laugh because years ago I was asked about what new music I listened to. And when I said R.E.M., the person pointed out R.E.M. had been around at the time for about 20 years. So it it really dates you. Um, the most recent CD I listened to this morning, I was listening to the new Bob Dylan CD. So uh, while it's new, obviously that's from an artist stuck in the sixties. So what, what's right. the he's not record? stuck in the sixties, but my mind may be album is. So anyway, um, so, but I, I, my favorite type of music really is uh, rock and roll and pop rock and things of that nature. Although I do listen to, uh, certainly enjoy listening to Frank Sinatra uh, to jazz, Dixieland jazz being from New Orleans and things of that nature. So I, I don't just listen to the Beatles. And many years back uh, when I evacuated for Hurricane Katrina, uh, what I took with me in the car was uh, some Mozart and some Beatles. I guess it would have been more appropriate if I would taken some Beethoven, but I, you know, anyway. Oh, uh, well, so you, you had a good starter pack there. Right. Or a and good Scovia finisher as pack. Well, so. That's all you really need. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, um, I do love all types of music. Obviously, I listen a lot to uh, Beatles when I'm working on a book project, uh, you know, because I want to immerse myself in the album and as much of the recording session material that I can listen to that is available. Well, we'll, we'll get to this a bit later, but, you know, your latest thing you've been working on is your Let It Be book, which yes. you, there's no lack of material uh of recording session stuff out yes. there. Do you have the whole, I think there's like a, a 90 CD bootleg of all one, of those sessions. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I have is a Japanese one, which I think is 83 CDs and uh, bits and pieces of it can be extremely tedious and some things even painful to listen to, but there are a lot of, a lot of rough gems in there. And it's uh, it's fascinating listening. Uh, 
I really think what I should have done as I was going along is I should have, um, you know, taken really good notes and edited it down to maybe like, you know, 40 or 50 CDs. (laughs) You know, even then that sounds like a lot, but uh, there really is a lot of interesting things. I'm one of these people that likes to hear how a song evolves and particularly fascinating with the song uh, Get Back Mm -hmm. uh, because Get Back literally begins as a jam in the studio while Paul is riffing on, um, you know, kind of on his bass and George calls out what I say. And so Paul does a little bit of that. And then uh, as he's riffing on his bass, sings out a couple of words, uh, you know, of a song that later ended up on Abbey Road and then, you know, moves on to shout. And then he starts again and he starts with this get back thing. And the third time they do it, he's got, you know, get back, get back to where you once belonged. And he even has, uh, you know, a lot of the lyrics, which would form the second verse of the song. So, you know, it's fascinating just to hear how that song evolved and grew in the studio. So I, I, I'm guessing that's one of the only Beatles songs that you can pretty much track the full evolution of. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's obviously no demo. I mean, it's just you're born and, you know, birthed in out of a jam session at Twickingham Film Studios and then carried forward over to Abbey Road where they refined it some and then got a good proper master take recording. Yeah. So I think he actually may be the only person I know who's actually listened to all, what was it, 83 CDs? Yes, 83. Wow. How long did it take you? It was over a period of about maybe uh, two months. Oh, wow. So I want to jump right back to the beginning now. All right. When did you first discover the Beatles? I discovered the Beatles at, I guess, age nine. And prior to the Beatles, um, I was listening to um, a radio station, primarily WTIX, which was what we called a top 40 station. Mm-hmm. And it played a blend of all the hit music. And being a New Orleans station, it played a lot of rhythm and blues music. There was no homogenized clear channel back in the day. So you got um, in local markets, they had their own music that they would play that you might not hear in other markets. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on a lot of Fats Domino and Ernie Cado and Irma Thomas and various other things. So you got all the good um, stuff just by being oh, in New Orleans. Did yeah. great stuff. And uh, my favorite group growing up as a kid pre-Beatles was the Coasters. I had a cousin who had given the album The Coasters Greatest Hits to my older sisters, and I permanently borrowed it from them, uh, you know, and basically played it all the time. I love that music. And uh, what I remember was on the school bus right after we started up after Christmas break, you know, hearing the song, I want to hold your hand and just was just immediately captivated by it, the freshness, the excitement of it. And, you know, became a fan immediately uh, after that. So this would have been Christmas 63, January 64, January, January 64. When I heard it on the school bus, I don't necessarily recall hearing it on WTIX before then, although it's possible I could have heard it once or twice, but the first time I really remember hearing it, was on the school bus. Uh, I'm going to make a wild assumption and say you're one of those uh, 73 million people who saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, that would be that would be a good assumption. I remember sitting in the, uh, you know, in our living room on the TV and the entire family, my parents and my two older sisters and I watched it. Um, my sisters didn't scream, but I could tell they were very intrigued by what they were seeing. Uh, I was focusing in on the music. But in addition to that, uh, you know, watching uh, the video, and it's funny because, you know, you, you, you saw it once, 
and it wasn't like you could play the video again and again and again in those days. Yeah. And yet I remembered certain scenes like the, you know, camera closing in on Ringo and then pulling back and things and how cool that was during I Want to Hold Your Hand. And many, many years later when I saw a film of them, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show, it was, yeah, I remember that. That's really cool. So, you know, there were certain things that were just permanently ingrained into my brain. And the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show was one of them. Uh, I had a Swanson TV dinner, which had macaroni and cheese and fried chicken. I remember that was my dinner that night. There you go. You couldn't have a better Sunday night. Yes, and when we hit the uh, the anniversary of it, you know, big anniversaries of it, I will duplicate it as best I can, although I upgrade a little bit and might use a Stouffer's macaroni and cheese and maybe Popeye's fried chicken um, and also throw in a glass of wine. Oh, that makes it even better. Absolutely. So what was the first Beatle record you remember owning? First record that I bought was Meet the Beatles. And I remember going to the record store with my mom and telling her that I, you know, had saved up my allowance a little bit and wanted to buy it. And of course, it was too much for my allowance. So my mother just bought it for me outright. And that was the first one was Meet the Beatles. And uh, people teased me about that because the first book I wrote was The Beatles Records on VJ. Mm -hmm. I didn't buy Introducing the Beatles at the time because I had a cousin who was six weeks younger than me and who lived close by, and he had Introducing the Beatles. So between the two of us, we had we had it covered. Mm -hmm. So out of those two records, which one do you prefer, Meet the Beatles or Introducing the Beatles? I think, um, you know, Meet the Beatles. And, and as I tell people, if you were going to make an album and I hate to use the word introduce, but to introduce a group to America, I can't think of a better album than Meet the Beatles. It's just absolutely, you know, from start to finish, just a flawless album. Well, for an early 64 Beatle record, I don't think there's any track you could have started it off with other than I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yeah, that was the thing. You see, Capitol Records believe that hit singles make hit albums. And so they knew they had to put the single on the album. And they were a little bit concerned about putting out a record with I Want to Hold Your Hand and This Boy, because they thought, you know, if I Want to Hold Your Hand for some reason doesn't work, we need another rocker on the flip side, because they were promoting the Beatles as a rock, you know, a rocking group. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they put I Saw Her Standing There on the B side, even though it was not on the British album with the Beatles and wasn't a single in the UK. But that was the B side in the US. And, you know, it was just an incredible one-two punch uh, and then you get into the With the Beatles album, uh, you know, with all the great Lennon McCartney originals, Harrison's Don't Bother Me, until there was you thrown in for good measure so Mommy and Daddy could at least enjoy one song on the album. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's from The Music Man, so... Absolutely. A Peggy Lee arrangement. Or what, did, what, did, what was it McCartney said during the uh, Royal Variety performance when they were doing that? It's like, it's from our fa favorite American group, Sophie Tucker. Yeah, that, and this was a joke that Paul always thought was funny. And in the UK, it, it was British humor and it almost worked. Uh, Sophie Tucker was a big woman, uh, you know, you, and so very immense. And so Paul's line of our favorite American group, meaning Sophie Tucker's so big, she's like a group. Ha ha, funny, funny. He tried the same joke in America and it completely bombed. <laughs> oh, it's, it's British sense of humor. Yes. It's, I, I wonder if that actually happened a lot with the Beatles kind of stage routine. They had to alter it for the Americans. I don't think they altered it too much. Um, 
you know, I mean, and I think that um, I think that probably taught Paul a lesson that, you know, something that's funny in the UK may not work in the US. So, uh, you know, after he tried the line and it kind of bombed, you know, Lennon kind of mocked him and he never used that line again in the US. Do you have any uh, standout memories of the, the, the kind of gradual evolution of the Beatles throughout the 60s as someone who was appreciating their music then? Well, to me, what always amazed me was that, you know, I grew up on type of music, uh, you know, not just, of course, R&B things from New Orleans, but like Motown. And in Motown, you know, an artist would come out with a record, and if it was a hit, the follow-up would sound just like it. And it wasn't just Motown that did that. Most artists would, you know, if you found that hit sound for the record, you wanted your follow-up to have that same sound and groove. The thing about the Beatles was each song seemed different. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like a replay. You know, when you listen to She Loves You, you didn't go, oh, well, that's just them reworking. I want to hold your hand. Yeah. I mean, it was a totally different sound. And that was what I found incredible about it. You know, that each new single that came out sounded different than the preceding one. And the same for the albums. The other thing about the albums was in those days, a single cost about a buck, although you could get them cheaper. And an album ran, a, you know, about three bucks. So for me, if I bought an album and it had three good songs on it, I was breaking even. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I got an album by the Supremes and it had three hits on it, okay, that's fine. And if the other stuff was filler and not that great, I felt I got my money's worth. But with a Beatles album, you know, all 11 or 12 songs were great. And there never was a time when I put on a Beatles album where I would get up, you know, and go to the record player and lift the needle and skip a couple of songs. So, you know, you played it from start to finish. So you, you grew up in New Orleans, uh, 66, mm -hmm. uh, John Lennon said the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Yeah. Do you have any memories of that living in the American South? I know that uh, a couple of girls that I knew weren't too happy about it. I, I didn't, you know, really didn't really bother me one way or the other. Uh, you know, the word immediately was Brian Epstein was saying it was taken out of context and all. And that was that was good enough for me. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want it to be something that would affect it. Plus I really felt, you know, I'm listening to the Beatles for the music, not because of any religious statement that, uh, John Lennon would make. It wasn't going to stop me from listening to them. Uh, so it, it didn't affect me any, I'm, I'm sure it did upset some people, but you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware of anything banning the Beatles type thing. Uh, I know didn't that at participate the time had, in any, uh, Beatle burnings. No, and at the time it hit, I was actually, my parents and I and my older sisters, we were on a vacation. And I remember hearing, uh, you know, Yellow Submarine and Eleanor Rigby on the radio. And the cities that we were driving through uh, certainly weren't banning those songs. They were definitely getting airplay because, you know, in the car we would have the radio going and it didn't matter what city we were going through. I was hearing those songs. I never got the mentality about the, the Beatle burnings. Because in order to burn the records, you need to buy them. And so they all went to, you know. Well, no, it wasn't that. There was the, they were taking their Beatles records they already owned, and they didn't burn the vinyl. They burned the covers, because if you burn vinyl, it gives off a noxious uh, fume. So I think people found out early at these bonfires, take the vinyl out of the record and this burn the jacket. And they were burning, you know, Beatle pictures and other things. I mean, you know, burn your Beatle trash here type thing. It faded fairly quickly. You know, it was big for a week or two or three, and then it kind of 
kind of, you know, stations got passed, but I think the stations in cities where there were multiple stations, and that was the case often, if a particular station said they weren't going to play the Beatles and didn't do it, they sort of found out it was rating suicide and the other stations were going to play the Beatles. So, you know, while they may have banned it for a week or two, now those bands did not last terribly long. Yeah, I don't think that could have been any better marketing for a competing radio station than like publicly announcing you're not going to play the most popular group in the world. Yeah, it's not not terribly uh, not terribly bright. I wouldn't want to do that. I want to ask you, where were you when you first heard Sgt. Pepper? Sgt. Pepper came out in the summer, so um, by that time I would have been at camp. And so I really didn't hear Pepper too much until I got back. And so, uh, you know, it was the type of thing where, you know, my memory of Pepper, I didn't have that communal experience that so many people in America heard of hearing it at the same time and knowing they were hearing it. And I, I kind of missed out on that to to a certain extent. Uh, you know, I remember being blown away by it, uh, particularly, um, you know, it was clever at the beginning and catchy songs and all. But I remember a day in the life, I just kind of sat there in a state of shock when it ended. <laughs> and I think we actually were lucky in the U.S. because the U.S. pressings, unlike the British pressings, did not have that high-pitched whistle and the inner groove gibberish yeah and so you could just let crashing, the record run out yeah when, when that crashing chord on a day in the life hit i mean it sounded like the end of the world to me so i'm kind of glad that was the way it ended for us i made the mistake one night of you know i decided you know i'm gonna fall asleep to a record tonight so i put on sergeant pepper but i put on a british copy and so it you know jolted me out of my <laughs> bed when i heard that like yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be that would be sometimes like having a romantic evening with somebody and putting on the White Album, and all of a sudden Revolution Nine comes on. But anyway, I digress. Speaking of Revolution Nine, I don't think the Beatles could have done anything better by following up Revolution Nine with Good Night. Yeah, I think that was great. Look, I know a lot of people think it shouldn't be on that album. Of course, it should be on the album. It's uh, you know, it, it's one of the things that makes the White Album the White Album. Exactly. Exactly. It, it may not be the strongest song. It may no. not be a song, depending on who you talk to. But that's one of the defining characteristics of the album. Yes, and, the variety of the music. And yeah. the experimentation. Yeah, the White Album is my favorite Beatles album. It is by no means their best. It's not their best. It's just my favorite. <laughs> well, those two are different things. A lot of people I talk to, yes. I ask, what's your favorite Beatle album? And they say, you know, oh, Sgt. Pepper. It was the most important album. It's like, no, that's not the question. Right, I agree. It is the most important. It's not their best. No. It's not my favorite. It doesn't have the best songs. It, like you say, it's their most important album. I, I think Revolver's a much better record, but it didn't have yes. as much of an impact as Sgt. Pepper did on everything in the pop culture around it. Yeah. So, I want to ask, you're, you're a lawyer. Oh, I am? No, you're <laughs> right. I am a lawyer. <laughs> So you, you were practicing, you're, are you still practicing law? Yes. So you're practicing law all these years. How did you make the transition from lawyer to Beatle author? I mean, that's a good question because, you know, look, after the Beatles broke up, I was still in high school. I dutifully bought all the solo albums throughout high school and through college. And by the time I got to law school, I was still, you know, buying them, but I wasn't, 
you know, playing them as over and over again as I would have a Beatles album. One of the reasons was that most of the solo albums were not as good as any of the Beatles albums, which isn't to say they were bad. You know, it was just, it's a pretty high standard. And although I always remained a fan, I kind of got away from it for a, a bit. And um, back, I guess, around 20 some odd years ago, maybe 25 years ago by now, um, I was working on a really big lawsuit for about a four year period. And it was a class action suit involving retirement benefits that were being, that had been taken away by a company and the participants had been really screwed badly. And spent four years on a class action case and got a really good check for four years of hard work. And what I noticed at that time was that roaches had eaten the spines of my cardboard beetle album oh, jackets oh. and so i wanted to replace them but i didn't want to replace them with records from the 90s you know i wanted to get the real thing and when i would read about um you know in some of the books i had about these record albums particularly the ones on vj and when i would ask dealers about them you know they'd say oh yeah this is the way it was and to me i'd say that doesn't seem right and they'd say no 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 it's in every book it has to be right and being a lawyer i thought well what if every book's wrong so I decided that I would go ahead and do some research on it. And I, I knew some, a record dealer, Perry Cox, Beatles memorabilia and record deal. And Perry said, you know, Bruce, I'm doing a new price guide one of these days. And could you write a little article on the VJ stuff? You seem to know a lot about it. So I wrote an article and I sent it to him and Perry said, oh, this is really good. You're a good writer. You know, this could be, uh, this could be the basis for a book. And I thought, well, that's kind of silly. But then I thought about it some more and I thought, well, I need to do a lot more research. So being an attorney, I know how to research and I know how to write. And the Beatles um, records on VJ and Beatles records on Capitol and they're on two competing labels at the same time. So I thought the companies must have sued each other. And in doing research, I found out that there were four major lawsuits involving uh, Capitol and VJ. And there was, um, you had... I think two in New York, one in Chicago, one in LA. And I went ahead and contacted paralegal services in those three cities and had the records in those lawsuits copied and sent to me. And from there, I had, you know, a lot of information. I also was able to obtain uh, some VJ paperwork. Uh, the company had been actually placed in bankruptcy in 1966. And uh, the woman who bought it out of bankruptcy was the controller for the company. And she took all these documents, VJ documents, and put them in storage. And had they not been placed in storage, a normal business cycle, they would have been destroyed within years. And I found out about her and I met with her and, um, you know, for writing her a check for a certain amount of money, I could have all these great documents. So I went ahead and did so. And with that information, I was able to piece together by combining the court records and her records with the vinyl records to piece it all together and figure out what happened. And Was that doing a pun? so, yeah, of course it was a pun, you know? And uh, if you get to know me well, you know I love puns. I inherited that from my mom. And the thing about it was that when you put the story together, it was fascinating. And every book on the Beatles. It said that introducing the Beatles had come out in the summer of 63, but my research had conclusively shown that it came out on January 10, 1964. 
And and I, of course, I wrote the book with that being that way. And the book was called, you know, um, you know, the Beatles records on VJ. And um, word kind of filtered out in the Beatles collector's world that there was this crazy, dumb attorney in Louisiana who was writing a book on VJ records. And he was so stupid that he didn't even know what year introducing the Beatles came out. And of course, when the book came out and they realized I had absolutely rock solid proof, that it did not come out until January 1064, uh, you know, the book became sort of an instant, you know, hit with the uh, collectors. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. I was going to do one book and the VJ book came out and got great reviews. I actually just want to ask like, you something oh, about that VJ yeah, book. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you got all these court records and VJ documents. What are some of the most interesting things you found in those documents that, you know, had never really been talked about before that were kind well, of the, eye openers for you. To me, I had the board of directors minute book. And in that, I found out that um, Ewart Abner, who had been with the company, uh, didn't leave to start his own record company on his own free will, as was he'd read a place. He actually uh, left the company because he had been caught embezzling money from the company. And that Atta put boy. them in cash flow difficulties. And that's what ultimately cost them the Beatles. They couldn't pay their royalties. I determined that the reason they lost the Beatles was their attorney. There were different lawsuits, but their attorney committed malpractice, which put capital at a tactical advantage in the litigation. And other interesting things was that had royalties amounting to like, you know, an insignificant amount, you know, like things like $700, if VJ had paid royalties of $700, they would have been able to keep the Beatles, but they didn't. I mean, it was just a lot of crazy things like that that came up. Um, and that's what I found so fascinating. I was able to determine where the Beatles records were pressed. Nobody knew, but I knew from the lawsuits where they were pressed and things like that. And I was able to determine, knowing the factories that names that pressed them, you know, I knew that Monarch Records pressed for them in LA and when you looked in the trail off areas of the albums, some of them had a small M in a circle, you know, so that meant Monarch. And then others, there was a place in Wisconsin called uh, American Record Presses or ARP. And, you know, some had that in the trail off and then others had nothing in the trail off. And that had to be by default, uh, you know, Southern Plastics out of Nashville. So there was just, it was a lot of fun. And I approached the book the same way I approach a lawsuit. You do what's called the discovery phase where you know, you're getting, you're interviewing people, which I did, and you're reviewing documents, which I did. And then, you know, you're looking at the law, which I was doing, and you're looking at documents, which I did. And then, you you know, you write it up. And as you're writing it up, you find new information and you change it to where by the time the book's finished, there are significant changes from what you started out. And, um, you know, because I'm a lawyer and I know that cases you know, eventually have an end and the courts tell you, you need to get this particular document or pleading into the court by a certain date. I'm good at working deadlines and getting things done on time. So that book took from start to finish. And I mean, from the moment I said, Hey, I'm going to do this book to when I had printed copies in my hand, it took nine months. Oh, wow. That That's a lot shorter than I thought it would be. For Yeah. I did. I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still one of you know the most impressive Beatle reference books out there. Well, thank you. And you know, my objective was to do a book that had the scholarly and research of a Mark Lewison book, but to make it visually exciting with color throughout. Mm -hmm. So, how did you go about writing 
all those other books. The Capitals, the Apples. The yeah, swans. I mean, look, the VJ book was going to be a single book, a footnote in Beatles history. So the book's done. And then all of a sudden, you know, people like it. And they're like, well, when are you going to do the Capital book? You know, oh, a Capital book? Okay, I guess I could do a Capital book. So I start the Capital book. And when I get to about page 400 and something, I realize that's going to need to be two books. So I'll do part one and part two. And, you know, part one will be Beatlemania and the singles, and part two will be the albums. Mm -hmm. And and so word got out that I was working on the Capitol books, and then all of a sudden people were like, well, that's really great. I can't wait till you do the Apple book. You know, and the next thing I know, people are telling me all these books I have to do. Yeah. Oh, you and have so to do the Swan being, book. You have to do yeah, the you know, Toilet well, book or Toilet. Oh, I mean, you know, it, it ended up being, you know, just did the main, major labels, and then the Swan book was a kind of a catch-all book. You know, I did a book on their solo records on Apple in a book, my favorite book called The Beatles Are Coming, which told, the you know, the story of how Beatlemania evolved in America. So, you know, it was all that. And then, uh, you know, then I retired. I was done. The Beatles Swan Song was my last book. I'm done. And then a guy named Frank Daniels, who had helped me with some of the books, um, you know, Frank comes out and says, well, we need to do a book on the British records. And I said, no, we don't. Oh, yeah, we do. So. Frank and I did a book on the British records. And then I said, okay, that's it. You know, like the who that's my farewell tour, never to see me again on a new book. And then when we hit the anniversary of Sergeant Pepper, I had written what I thought was a really cool essay on, on the album in the U S and the problem was I couldn't think of where I could get this thing published. You know, it was probably too long for Beatle fan plus Beatle fans of black and white fan magazine a great magazine but it wasn't going to have color pictures throughout shout out to al sussman yeah you know and so then okay that isn't going to happen and then all right all right now what well you know what can i do and i thought well i could put out a magazine myself and then what am i talking about i could put out a book but i want to talk about other things like what was going on at the time and this and i thought i don't have time to do that because i'm getting near when i would have to have a book done and i got the idea to contact Al Sussman and say, Al, could you write an article about what was going on in 1967? And, you know, Bill King, could you contribute something? And Pierce Hemmingson, could you contribute what was going on in Canada? And Frank Daniels, could you write about the other music at the time? And then I got the idea of, you know, it would be fun to just hear from other fans about when they first heard Pepper and what Pepper made meant to them. And so I solicited from my website, Fan Recollections. And I start getting these wonderful, heartwarming stories, um, you know, where somebody who, you know, that, uh, you know, we played the Beatles, and our mom had died and we lived in the country and we went and we got Sergeant Pepper. And when my dad heard when I'm 64, he really liked it. And it meant so much to us, you know, things like that. And then I get one from a guy who says, um, I was going to a recording session. I was with the Royal Guardsmen and it was summertime and we were going to record a Christmas single. You know, you record Christmas yeah. singles in the summer and it was called Snoopy's Christmas. And I pull off to the side of the road when I'm hearing Sergeant Pepper. And I thought, that's really cool. And I thought, you know, you idiot. Musicians are big Beatle fans. I thought, who can I get? And I knew someone who knew Peter Torker, the monkeys, and I contacted her. And she said, well, let me let me see if I can get Peter to do something. And so she forgot about it. And a few weeks later, I call her up and, you know, and I said, Karen, <laughs> Did you ever contact Peter? Oh, Bruce, I'm sorry, I forgot. Let me shoot him an email. So about 20 minutes later, I get another email from her. And it's like, um, here's what Peter had to say. And it was like, you know, 20 minutes later, Peter, from his heart, he had written this really wonderful fan recollection. 
And then, you know, the coup de gras was that I knew someone who knew Billy Joel. And um, Billy Joel uh, wrote a really good fan recollection about the first time he heard Pepper. And so I ended up calling the book, you know, The Beatles and Sergeant Pepper, a fans, meaning in plural, perspective. And um, when the book came out, people were like, well, you know, Bruce, of course, you're going to have to do a book on the White Album. And then it was like, okay, I'm just going to do this album series. And so the first book on it was the Sgt. Pepper book. The second one was on the White Album called The Beatles' White Album and the Launch of Apple. The third one was on Abbey Road called The Beatles' Get Back to Abbey Road, which was a bit of a pun because the book covered the Get Back single through the Abbey Road album. But it also talked about the story how in 1969 the Beatles got back to Abbey Road. They started at Twickenham Film Studios, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. They then were at Apple. Then they were at Olympic. You know, I mean, so they were at uh, Trident. You know, there were all these different studios. And then they get back to Abbey Road in July and stay at Abbey Road and do this great album, which ended up being called Abbey Road. And so for the fourth book in the series, what I remembered most about the Let It Be album was I would get Rolling Stone magazine and I had read about what the Get Back album was going to have on it. It was called Get Back, mm -hmm. but it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And by the time we got into 1970, it seemed like almost every issue, Rolling Stone was talking about it getting delayed again. And then, you know, finally, Let It Be comes out. So I thought, okay, I'll call this book The Beatles, Finally Let It Be. And it also was a broader pun in that the number one question that Apple has been asked over the years was, when are you going to release, you know, the Let It Be film on DVD or Blu-ray? And so with the Peter Jackson film, you know, they were going to have this new film, but also finally release Let It Be Again. So once again, the Beatles finally let it be. And then, of course, COVID-19 hits and the film gets delayed a year. But I decided I was going to come out with my book anyway. And so on September 4th, the date the Peter Jackson film would have come out, those who order the digital edition of the book from my website, Beatle.net, or the collector's edition of the book, uh, from the website beetle.net they will be able to download the digital version of the book and will actually ship out the hardcover edition of the book probably on september 16th it's looking like now well that's just apple records on top form though you know getting delayed and that's you on top form with all those puns because yes, we've indeed. already established you like puns absolutely so i think that's a perfect way to segue into talking about the let it be book absolutely I want to ask, what do you think is the biggest misconception, even among big Beatle fans, you know, amateur historians, what do you think is the biggest misconception about those sessions? Well, I, I think that um, people tend to think that they were horrible sessions. There was constantly fighting and bickering. And, and I can understand why you would think that, uh, you know, you watch the film and there's a scene with Paul and, you know, and George arguing about, uh, the, you know, George is playing on a song. And, you know, we know for a fact George quit the group. And in the British uh, magazines later on, John talks about how miserable it was in his Rolling Stone interview in 1970, you know, how miserable, or 71, how miserable it was. And, and you know, and get that impression, you know, and the film was dark and all. To be fair, you can't take and, anything he said in those uh, 1970 no, you, you Rolling really, Stone really, interviews at face you value. You really can't. You can't. But here's the thing. Yeah, it clearly... I mean, George quit the group. It couldn't have been all fun and games. But when you listen to all of the music, uh, you know, all 83 hours of it or whatever, 
there are a lot of really fun times there. And that's why I'm looking forward to the Peter Jackson film, because I think he's going to show, look, these guys had their differences, but they had a hell of a lot of fun in the studio as well. Like, even when George left the group, you, you ended up with that really interesting jam session. I think it was even later that day with John, Paul, Ringo, and Yoko. I think you're being very polite saying it was interesting. Um, Whether it's good or not much. is irrelevant. <laughs> it's one of the most interesting Beatles-related yeah, recordings. Say, yeah, or you'll listen to the version of Don't Let Me Down that John does after George leaves. And, I mean, it's horrendous. It's just absolutely horrible, and it sounds like John singing it bad deliberately. <laughs> and very well may have been. So, you know, they needed, even though John, oh, we'll just get Eric Clapton to take his place. Yeah, right. Uh, it was important that George, of course, rejoin the sessions. And George, uh, you know, the, insisted that they start again up at Apple. And the other interesting thing that had happened was George had recently uh, seen Billy Preston uh, in the band that Ray Charles had. He was in Ray Charles's touring band, and he had remembered Billy from when Billy was in Little Richard's band, uh, you know, back in the yeah. day, back in Hamburg even. So here, you know, he got the idea, went backstage, talked to Billy and said, look, why don't you drop by Apple? So Billy shows up at Apple and Harrison brings him down to the basement studio and he sits in and it had two effects. One was that the Beatles wanted to do this album without overdubbing. And in some of the Twickenham stuff, you can hear, you know, yeah, well, this song would really be good if we had piano on it. And so here's a keyboard player that they can use. And the other thing about it was that when you have company at your house, you generally tend to behave better. You may not argue in front of company as much. Yeah, it's, it was the and Beatles so his, on their best behavior. Yeah. And that helped a lot, too. And so Billy Preston not only was an important part of the sound of that album, but also, you know, making them get together a lot better. So, you know, they go from Twickingham, which is a dark, giant, cold soundstage at a film studio. And they're supposed to be there during the day when they're used to recording late afternoon and into the evening hours. So that was culture shock for them as well. So, look, it was going to be rough doing things at Twickingham. Um, and when they went to Apple, the mood certainly did improve. So I think people thought it was all misery. That's certainly not not correct. Uh, so that's something that, uh, you know, listening to all that stuff, you, you find out and get pretty clear about. Um, you know, and then I think you get different opinions about the different albums. And to make the obvious pun, it was a long and winding road to get to that Let It Be album. Because, you know, you were in a situation where, You've got what Glenn Johns did. And if you listen to the Get Back albums that Glenn Johns did, <laughs> they're by no means perfect. No. He didn't want them to be perfect. But I think he kind of overplayed his hand. His idea was, you know, like the Beatles with their socks off, and that's all good and well, but most people's feet smell funny. And so he would get excited about, you know, this is a really cool version, uh, you know, of if I've got a feeling because at the beginning of it, you know, John says, you know, we're going to do Dig a Pony straight until I got a fever. Gee, that's really neat. And, you know, and we'll do this now. But the problem with the version of I've Got a Feeling that he selected for the Get Back album was it breaks down. And while it's funny to hear John say, you know, oh, cocked it up and got too loud. Um, the problem is we lose the best part of the song. And that's when John's singing the Everybody Had a Hard Year part that he wrote in counterpart to Paul's I've Got a Feeling. And so 
you lose the best part of a song. Why would you want to do that? And, um, you know, and some of the other songs just weren't the best takes. Two of us is kind of slow and plodding. And it's, you know, and these are like from the earlier parts of the sessions. And he focused too much on that in, you know, takes an earlier version of the long and winding road when there's a much better version recorded on the last day of the sessions. So I think at Glenn John selected better takes of some of the songs left in the studio banner before those later takes, maybe, I think it would have been a, a vastly better album. So the Beatles knew it sounded amateurish, particularly once they had released Abbey Road, you know, it really sounded like, you know, an amateur type album. And Phil Spector was brought in on it. I think it was something Alan Klein really wanted. Yeah. And, you know, and so Spector comes in and look, some people vilify Spector for what he did. Some people think he was great. I think there are strengths and weaknesses on the Spectre album. I absolutely love how clean and crisp two of us sound. Mm -hmm. You know, I absolutely love the fact that he took all those versions like Dig a Pony and I've Got a Feeling from the rooftop. They sound great, much better than the Glenn John selected versions. But it's hard for me to forgive him for what he did to Let It Be. It's the same take, but he brings the brass way up in the mix. George's raunchy guitar solo way up in the mix. So by the end of a song, Paul's competing with that. I didn't like the, you know, the emphasis on the maracas, the heavy handed percussion in the mix. Long and Winding Road, I absolutely hated a choir, a harp. You know, I wasn't really happy about Across the Universe. I thought, that, you know, all that wasn't necessary. And while well, I mean, mine, it didn't ruin the song. It just wasn't necessary. See, that's so, one thing where I think we'd actually disagree. I actually prefer the specterized version of I Me Mine for some reason. I don't know why. It's the only well, thing look, on that record. You're entitled to that opinion, as wrong as it may be. No, I'm, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, and I get this argument with people. I love the Let It Be single, and I hate the album version. And I've got friends that love the album version because they think George's guitar solo is so so unique. I just and want great. to say I want to thank you for correcting my opinion. That's that's the perfect atmosphere for this show. Mm -hmm. It's you know, so Beatle uh, nerds. No, it's it's Beatle fun nerding. stuff. So look, so here we are, the Get Back album doesn't really cut it then we get the let it be album and that doesn't really cut it so then years later we get let it be naked and you know nobody knew what it was going to be and um, it ended up being the idea of what if the get back let it be sessions had resulted in an album meant to fit comfortably within the same type of studio wizardry and perfection you know and working things sounding great as Abbey Road and the White Album. And they achieved it brilliantly. The songs sound great. And I loved the album when it came out, but listening to it when I was working on the Beatles' Finally Let It Be book, I realized it was missing something. It had no soul. It was missing the studio banter, the fun stuff. It wasn't a bad album. It just was missing something. And so here we are. The Beatles have yet to put out the perfect album of those sessions. And maybe they never will, you know, but there's a lot of great music. There's another version of Let It Be that a lot of people don't think of. And that's the Anthology 3. If you take Anthology 3, there are tons of songs from the Get Back sessions. And if you put them in whatever order you want to, you create your own version of the Get Back Let It Be album. 
So counting that, you know, there's another version out there. So there are tons of versions. And in the book, you know, I go through all of that because I think it's important to understand all the different versions of it and how it got to be what it got to be. You know, it is clearly probably the most confusing period of the Beatles music. And there's more music from those sessions than any other you know, 83 CDs worth. <laughs> you know, it's, I want to ask you, it's amazing. out of all those versions, you know, the Glenn Johns mix, the Phil Spector, which is your personal favorite to listen to? You know, when you want to I listen really to like, the Get Back or Let It Be album. I like the, uh, the first Glenn Johns one, but what I did myself in these days where you can do it yourself, I kind of took a lot, I used the Glenn Johns album as my basis, but I substituted in better performances. So after John says, you know, we're going to go dig a pony straight into I've Got a Fever, I take Dig a Pony and I've got a feeling from the rooftop concert from the actual Spectre Let It Be album, uh, you know, and then I substitute out uh, the Let It Be single, uh, you know, for the Spectreized version. And Long and Winding Road, I take a version from December 31 from one of the bootlegs. And in doing that, I really think it's, you know, to me, is a great listening experience. So that's what I prefer to listen to. Let It Be Naked, as I've said, I loved it when it came out, but it doesn't have all the fun of the other albums. No, because, see, that's one per issue I think I've always had with Let It Be Naked. It, it just reeks of McCartney trying to kind of rewrite history. I, I don't know if that's a correct opinion, but that that's always how it came across to me. Because he just... I mean, I'm glad they came out with it because mm -hmm. I'd never really heard those some of those songs sound that good. I mean, two of us just, you know, sounded uh, great. Get Back sounded great. Now, I thought two of us was great on Let It Be, but it was even better on Let It Be Naked. You know, so it was, it was nice hearing it. So, I mean, I'm certainly glad they came out with the album. I'm, I'm glad they did, too, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for experiencing albums in different ways. Yes, That's indeed. why I'm I'm really glad that they have these remixes now of the albums. Yes. Because you're able to just listen to them in, you know, a different context. Yes. So I want to jump forward a year or so from 69 from the sessions to the release of the Let It Be album. Yeah. I, from my own kind of understanding, it seems to be one of the most, or at least the most confusing Beatles American release since uh, Capital had stopped rearranging the tracks. Right. I, I've, I've always heard that the reason why the album came out the way it did with like the Red Apple was because there was some sort of contractual thing with United Artists. Is there any truth to this? The contractual part of it is correct, the Red Label, no. Uh, the thing was that um, the Beatles signed a or Brian Epstein for the Beatles had him sign a deal with United Artists for three films and two soundtrack albums why it was done that way I don't know perhaps the thinking was that maybe one of the movies the Beatles would do would be a dramatic type movie that wouldn't have a soundtrack per se so I don't know but anyway the contract clearly said you know that it would be for three films and two albums for United States release soundtracks because united artists had this company united artists records primarily in the states and this was an idea that a guy who worked for united artists in the uk had the foresight and this was before you know beatlemania 
totally dominated the UK. And he's thinking ahead and saying, I think this group's going to really be big. And he gets the idea, we should sign them for a film contract for a couple of films. And in the contract state that United Artists Records, because they're already signed to EMI in the UK, but United Artists Records in the States will get two of the soundtracks. And so A Hard Day's Night comes out, the soundtracks on United Artists Records, and then Help comes out and it's Capitals turn and they get the soundtrack album. And then many, many people make this mistake and it's in almost every Beatles book and I can assure you it's wrong that Yellow Submarine is the third and final album of the, I mean the third and final movie of the deal. That is completely wrong. The cartoon and even the people who did the cartoon for the Beatles, you know, they felt it was. The Beatles wanted it to be, hey, this is how we get out of this stupid movie deal we're in. Because by then they realized they're not going to be doing another movie. And um, United Artists said, no, it's a friggin' cartoon and you're only in it for like a minute. No way. You still owe us a movie. So Yellow Submarine was not the third film. It was distributed by United Artists, but it did not count as the third film. When Spectre took over the management of Apple, Spectre was like, you know, why do you guys want to do this as a television special? Originally, Get Back was going to be a television special. Why do you want to do that? You'll make much more money if you make it a movie. Put it in theaters. And so he went to United Artists and said, look, we know we owe you a movie. So we'll do this as the movie. And you'll get the soundtrack album. He went back to Capitol and Capitol was upset because they, you know, they were going to lose an album. Mm -hmm. And what he did, he told Capital, look, I'll have United Artists agree to have Capital press the albums. So even though the album is officially distributed by United Artists for Apple, the album was pressed by Capital Records. So that's why you see, you know, if you know what a Capital Record looks like, you know it's a Capital Record. Why the red label? Alan Steckler, who worked for Abco, Alan Klein's company, decided that special albums should have a special label. So he decided it should have a red label. Just like for George's All Things Must Pass, special albums should have a special label. Why not orange labels? Simple as that. Although, what what made it a special album in terms of... It's a soundtrack album. It's a soundtrack from a Beatles movie. And they planned on selling boatloads of them. And they did. They sold between three and four million units almost right out the box, which was an incredible amount of sales. With the promotion of, you know, all the hit singles in the movie. Now, in the U.K., and in many other markets, it came in a box. Including Canada. With a, yeah, in Canada with a booklet. In the U.S., United Artists and probably Klein didn't want to do that because they felt it would affect sales. So instead, they did it as a gatefold album and charged a premium for the gatefold, but only a dollar premium. And, it, you know, it sold incredible. See, this is the, this is the kind of stuff I love, as especially a Beatle record nerd, when you look at the British stuff and the American stuff. It's even like things like the catalog number. It doesn't really match up with any of the others. No, it's United Artists catalog number. Because it would have been... I, I'm not exactly completely familiar with the capital cataloging system. It would have been like S-M-A-S or S-M-A-L with the gatefold. Yeah. Something like yeah, that. That's correct. Yeah. Because I know there's S-M-A-L, S-M-A-S, which I think is something with the boot the booklet from magical mystery tour yeah l would be libretto libretto yeah. booklet so yeah you know i look, feel like i'm talking been... out of my ass here because i only kind of know 
but you know, look, but you know, and the, the thing too that you have to understand how this thing evolved. You know, we talked about Twickingham, but the, the the whole get back idea and project really started in uh, September of 1968 when the Beatles did the promotional videos for Hey Jude. They were done with Michael Lindsay Hogg Hug at the direction. They were done at Twickingham, and they were done with a live audience. Paul got the idea of why don't we do a concert where we'll play, you know, maybe like eight new songs and some oldies, you know, like, you know, rock and roll stuff from our old cavern days. And, uh, you know, we'll do these rehearsals and it was going to be that we'll play some tracks, you know, from the white album, our new album. And then the idea was, well, why don't we learn some new songs? And so the next thing, you know, it evolves into something totally different. Originally, if you were in the UK, you would have been reading in late 68, the Beatles were going to do this concert of White Album songs. It wasn't called the White Album, but songs from the new album. And first it was going to be at Royal Albert Hall, then it was going to be at the Roundhouse, and it was going to be, we don't know where it's going to be. Then the concert got postponed, it got canceled. And so, you know, its roots really start back with the Hey Jude Revolution promotional video. I want to jump into, you know, you're world-renowned for your reference books on records. I want to talk a little bit about the records. All right. How many Beatle records do you actually own? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never really counted, but obviously, you know, I would think, you know, in the in the thousands. Thousands. Certainly. Oh yeah. How, how many would you say on average per release? Like how many copies? No, I mean, of you know, meet I, the Beatles. You know, probably about five or six. You know, I mean. The thing was that when I was doing the Capital books and later the Apple books and things and Swan Song books, you know, I wanted to get different label variations. So I would go to, you know, record stores or, you know, I would go to swap meets or Beetlefest and I would look for things that I didn't have in my collection so that I'd have stuff that could be scanned for the books. I mean, when I did the Parlophone book, I was in the UK and I went to several record stores in the UK. Uh, you know, when I look at a label, is that one I have or not? And fortunately, you know, my memory was pretty good. So I could remember what I did or didn't have and didn't get too many duplicates that way. When I did the Apple book, there were so many different variations of those Apple labels. You know, the same thing. I just keep buying all these different variations. So that's why I have so many different variations of the records. Um, what would you say are the main differences? This is really a bit of an esoteric question between the capital pressing plant pressing. Yeah, I mean, they were pressed with the, they were pressed with the same equipment, so they really shouldn't be that different. And they all pretty much use the same masters. Now with reissues down the line, an album might be remastered. And when it was remastered, it would sound different, better or worse, take your, you know, take your pick. But um, capital mastered things differently than in the UK. And this is really getting esoteric. In the States, what capital would do is if they were coming out with the Beatles album, they know they might need as many as, you know, 40 to 50 masters to make all these different mothers, to make all these different stampers, to press all these records. You know, these are different stages of production. In the UK, they would just cut one set of masters for the album, and then they would make what would be called sub-masters from the mothers by going in the reverse direction and then go back down again. So when Harry Moss mastered a Beatles album in 1964, it wouldn't get remastered until maybe 1969 or 70 when they could no longer do anything with the metal parts they had. Whereas Capitol would 
do 20 to 40 to 50 right out the bat. Now, each one wouldn't sound different because they would be mastered with the same, you know, settings. So they would sound the same. Although if one of them by chance had a poor master that had a defect in it, then all of the mothers and stampers that came from that masters would have that same defect. And nobody might never be the wiser until years later. Why do you think... But that's kind of esoteric. Well, esoteric's good on this show. Okay. Uh, why do you think people like to own so many variations of these records? Like, what would you say to someone who's like, oh, why does it matter if this version has a label difference, if it has like a slightly different font? You know, look, for me, the most important thing is to own the very first thing. You know, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I have a genuine first pressing of the British Love Me Do. Okay. On the red label. The very first pressing of the Canadian Love Me Do is extremely difficult to obtain, and Pierce Hemmingson could wax poetic about uh, how to tell that. And without Pierce's book in front of me, there's I would not dare try to attempt it. But suffice to say that having the first thing, to me, is very important. And then... Sometimes, even though it's not the first thing, it's rare. So, for example, uh, you know, the single that has the song What Goes On, you know, Nowhere Man, What Goes On single, the singles that first came out, list the songwriting is Lennon McCartney. And that's your first pressing. Mm -hmm. Later pressings say Lennon McCartney Starkey. But because the later pressings weren't that many because they had pressed like so many to satisfy initial demand, those are rarer and worth more. You know, early, the absolute first labels, I think it's Day Tripper, we can work it out, do not have the times. So that makes them a first pressing. But the rarest Day Tripper, we can work it out, is one that's pressed on this Starline Target label by mistake. So that is worth a lot of money because they only pressed, you know, a handful. Maybe they did 100 of them. You know, so that's a relatively small number. So that's your most valuable one, even though it's not a first pressing. So the things that I look for... Or I want the first pressing and I want something that makes it really unique and something sometimes that just visually looks nice. Some record labels just look nicer than others because of the font. What would you say is the most unique Beatles pressing uh, that was made in the United States? Well, to me, the one that I would want, it's not the rarest. The rarest is the Anna single on VJ <laughs> promo thing. I mean, they're, you know, a handful of those, literally. There may be like a dozen or so that have survived. Do you have one? No, I don't. I never bought one because it wasn't historically significant. I know that sounds silly, but it wasn't. You know, whereas, to me, a copy of the Please Please Me, VJ 498, the very first Beatles single in America with the group's name misspelled with two T's in it, to me, now that's a record worth owning. Because of its historical significance. Absolutely. Would you consider yourself a collector? Yes. What would you say was, in all these years, on your quest to find all these Beatle records, was your holy grail for the longest time? Or if you're still looking for it? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, that I would love to find a promo copy of Introducing the Beatles, white label oh. promo. <laughs> we're, we're like 99.9% .9 sure there is no such thing. You know, but never say never because things keep turning up. I mean, one of the cooler things that a buddy of mine discovered a year or so ago uh, was a, a, a test pressing for an EP that Capital never put out that was going to have on it um, Yesterday Act Naturally, I've Just Seen a Face, It's Only Love, 
and that was going to come out instead of the uh, until they later changed their mind and decided to put out the yesterday single instead. Really? Yeah. I I had no idea about that. Yeah, that eventually will be in one of my books. And I think when I do the revised digital edition of the Capital Singles book, I'll have that in there. I want to actually go back to that Capital or those Capital books. How do you feel now that these days they have shot up in value? I, I'm very flattered by it. I mean, you know, when somebody buys it on eBay for, you know, two or three hundred dollars, I don't get a check from them. But uh, <laughs> only two or three hundred. Yeah, whatever. You know, but. Uh, but, you know, look, and that's why I did digital yeah. versions of the uh, VJ and Capital books, plus the revised expanded editions that have things in them that are not in the others. So, you know, even if you own the VJ or the Capital books and you haven't discovered the digital books, they certainly are essential and worth getting. Plus, you can go to record meets and, you know, have a PDF of the book on your, you know, iPad and makes going to the meets a lot easier than lugging around my heavy books. Now I want to get into the part where it's just pure opinion. I want to hear your opinions on this. All right, fair enough. Which do you prefer? Or it's kind of a broad question. The mono records or the stereo records when it comes to the States? From the States, look, I I grew up listening to the mono records, but, you know, to me, probably the stereo on a lot of the albums, look, you know, Beatles' second album in stereo, and unfortunately in CD you don't get it that way, but it has all this added echo on it particularly you know the cover songs like roll over beethoven really cool stuff so you know for that album definitely in stereo sergeant pepper be it uk or u.s pressing um you know both are worth listening to because some of the songs are better in stereo and some of the songs are better in mono like a day in the life is better in stereo i love the way the vocals you know you know phase around different parts of the room you know, stuff like that. It's a song meant to be heard in stereo. Uh, whereas Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite should sound better in stereo, but it doesn't. Now, what do I listen to, Sergeant Pepper, today? I listen to the Giles Martin remix. It's fantastic. Quite frankly. That's my favorite. It's. I think Giles did a great job. Uh, it's been said before, but he took all the stuff I liked about the mono mix and kind of somehow translated it into the 2017 stereo mix. Yeah, the idea behind it was, what if the Beatles had done the mono mix with the same, I mean, the stereo mix with the same loving care that they did the mono mix with? And when you listen to it, you find that almost all of it follows the mono mix with the exception of the segue uh, from Good Morning, Good Morning into the Sgt. Pepper reprise, which is the stereo edit, and rightfully so, because the stereo edit was done after the mono edit, and it's a much better edit. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel about the treatment of Dave Dexter Jr. in the Beatle history books? I think he is um, vilified to the point of absurdity. However, look, Dexter turned the group down four times. That was pretty stupid. Yeah. But it worked out okay for us in the States. So... You know, maybe if Dexter had signed Capital right away, they would have put out a couple of singles that didn't sell well, and the Beatles would have been, you know, a footnote in history of something that was big in the UK. They may not have made it in the States. I guess they eventually would have, but not with the same explosion. So although what Dexter did was silly, it ended up being working out right for us in the States. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't have had at the same time, I want to hold your hand, she loves you, and please, please me, racing up the charts together. Beatlemania exploded in the States because of all that. You wouldn't have had if you look at the, the top albums, five singles in January yeah, later 64. On you, get, you wouldn't have had them for February. Or was well, it? I, didn't, I think that happened in April, April 4th. But um, anyway, if you look at the albums, Meet the Beatles, can you think of a more perfect album? If they had taken, you know, in the U.S., we only had 11 or 12 songs rather than 14 in the U.K. Why? Because of the way song royalties are com computed. In the U.K., they're done per record in the States per song. So that's the short story there. So think about what he did. He took the album with the Beatles and he said, hit songs or hit singles make hit albums. So we have to put on it the hit single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, in both the flip sides, the U.K., This Boy, and the U.S., I Want to Hold Your Hand. And let's take all the Lennon-McCartney originals, George Harrison's original, Don't Bother Me. That gets us up to 11. And to get to 12, we'll put in Till There Was You from The Music Man, something mom and dad could love. Could anybody have done a more perfect album? No, you couldn't have. Now we move on to the Beatles' second album. It takes the rock and roll songs from With the Beatles that didn't get put out yet, some other songs like, oh, yeah, she loves you, Long Tall Sally, <laughs> and we put that on an album. Even people who hate what Dave Dexter did love that album. I, I love it. it it's a yeah. great rock and roll record. So, you know, something new, yeah, not that great, but he had to do something different than the United Artist album, so we'll give him a pass there. You listen to Beatles 65. Well, it's Beatles for Sale side one, but it also has the hit single, I Feel Fine, She's a Woman. Beatles for Sale part two is, you know, Beatles six. And it has some songs that hadn't come out yet. And it's got two rockers that the Beatles recorded specifically for that album at Capitol's request. Mm -hmm. Dizzy Miss Lizzie. You know, they needed two more songs. So what do they do? They go into it. Let's do two Larry Williams songs we can do in our sleep. So we get Slow Down and we get Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Uh, the Help soundtrack. That's interesting. Uh, you know, and then Rubber Soul. Wow, the Rubber Soul U.S. version's brilliant. People ask me, what do you like better, the U.K. or the U.S. Rubber Soul? I tell them it's like comparing a great red wine with a great white wine. They're both brilliant in their own way, except them both. I don't even really consider them the same album. The I mean, you know, one's this cohesive folk rock album and one's just a great album. How great were the Rubber Soul sessions? Think about it. They record 16 songs. When the Beatles hits album come out, the Red mm -hmm. album, out of those 16 songs, eight of them are on that album. <laughs> That's how great the songs were for the Rubber Soul. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look, I think Dexter did a great job in programming those albums. Um, you know, I, did I like the duophonic stuff he did? Not particularly. Do I think he used Echo too much on some songs? Yeah. But overall, I think Dexter did a decent job. Look, Capitol Records did not butcher the Beatles. Capitol marketed the Beatles, and they did a damn good job of it. The only album I don't think that has any redeeming qualities about it is the American Revolver. Well, it look, are 14 songs better than 11? Yes. The reason it was done that way was, you know, you would have had three songs that were already on Yesterday and Today. So why would you put them on Revolver and pay an extra six cents per record? to get the royalties. So that's why I agree with you. 
there's no reason to listen to the American Revolver, but I know why it was done the way it was done. And that wasn't Dave Dexter. By that time, Bill Miller was doing the things. Dexter had been kind of at the urging of EMI in the Beatles. Dexter had been put off the pasture and in charge of their oldies things for capital. I want to ask you, so we've already established your favorite Beatle album is the White Album. Do you have yes. the least favorite Beatle album? Maybe something new. Really? It's not bad, you know, it's just, you know, to me it's just, yeah, it's kind of a pieces part album that doesn't quite work for me. It's, out of all the Beatles albums, it is one of them. That's, I think, one of the best compliments you can give it. It was one of the Beatle albums. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad album by any means, but you ask me, what Beatle album do I hardly ever listen to? Something new. And I'm not going to talk about real music or love songs or those things, you know, because those really are compilations during that, well, after the group broke okay. up. But, you know, favorite album, um, you know, for me would be the White Album, Best to Listen to, Abbey Road, you know, I mean, just as, you know, most important, of course, Sgt. Pepper. And don't look, don't downplay those early albums with the Beatles is, you know, you know, a great album, but meet the Beatles even better because, well, it's got, I want to hold your hand and this boy on it, you know, and I saw her standing there. I think there. A Hard Day's Night and is better I tell than people, both of them. Yeah. But look, if you were going to introduce a group to America, what song would you rather them hear? Would you rather them hear I Want to Hold Your Hand or Devil in Her Heart? You know, it's a pretty easy answer to that. Not that With the Beatles is a bad album. No. <laughs> you know, it's not. I, I don't think any of the Beatles albums could really be considered bad. No, I'd agree with yeah, that. They're just, it, it's, it's, it's the Beatles. Yes. So, do you have a favorite Beatles song? I answer that with, with three songs. My, my favorite song that was a mega hit is Hey Jude. My favorite song that was a well-known album track is In My Life. And my favorite Beatles song out of the songs that are a little bit more obscure would be Across the Universe. Love the song, not the version on the Let It Be album, but actually my favorite version is a bootleg version, the so-called Hums Wild version. Could you explain what that version is? Well, it's similar to the one on Anthology, but it's just where they did a few things differently and then changed their mind and recorded over them, but it has some extra sound effects on it that are kind of cool. And following up to that, do you have a least favorite Beatles song? Without a doubt, the worst song the Beatles ever recorded, What's the New Mary Jane? By far the worst. Okay, that's actually one I haven't heard yet. No, I mean, it's on that, anthology. No, I mean that's an answer I haven't heard yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can't think of anything worse. I mean, it's half-baked. It's It's fully baked. <laughs> True. I meant the idea was half-baked. No, yeah. I know. I'm kidding. You know What I don't like about it is it just doesn't go anywhere. No. It, it doesn't even have a particularly interesting melody. The lyrics no. are meaningless. John co-wrote it with Magic Alex. Need I say any more? Somehow it's still one of the best things Magic Alex did. Well, that's probably yeah. true. <laughs> and I want to ask, why do you think the Beatles still matter today? I got asked that question for the 40th anniversary by 
national magazines, including like U.S. World News Report, those types of magazines. <laughs> and I said, it's going to be a boring answer. Why did the Beatles matter to me in 1964? It mattered to me, you know, they were exotic. They were from the U.K., but we now live in a, you know, a global world, you know, so so this just doesn't, no big deal. We're in a global community. It's no big deal that they were British and they had these accents. They had this really cool looking, radically long hair. Give me a break. We don't have that anymore. You know, I love the way they stood up to authority and mocked them without authority knowing they were being mocked. And oh yeah, the music. That's why I liked them. Today, those other factors don't matter, but the music does. So we listen to the Beatles today for the same reason that we listen to Beethoven and Schubert and Bach and Louis Armstrong. It's because it's timeless, great music. And that's why, you know, a hundred years from now, somebody will be interviewing somebody else about the Beatles and that person will be a expert on the Beatles then and will be saying all the subtleties about it and, and people will still be listening to it. It's because of the quality of the music. It's a simple, simple answer. And now for, I think, the least smooth segue possible. Bruce, what would you like to plug additionally? I think that's a great segue. I would love for people to go to my website, Beetle.net. It has some fun articles on it. And as soon as I get time, there'll be more added. Um, people who are, you know, who like digital things, um, the digital versions of the books are really cool. And they're done in a PDF format. So they look really nice on your iPad or computer. Um, obviously, I really like the album series. It's fun because all the all the four books in the album series have these fan recollections, which I think are an integral part of the book. They're visually interesting. You learn about how these albums were perceived when they first came out. You know, you get reviews from the music magazines in the UK. You get reviews in the US from, uh, you know, Rolling Stone by the time we get to Let It Be, of course. Uh, and also what Billboard, Cashbox and Record World thought, you know, the trade magazines. Uh, you get details of the recording sessions. You get what was going on in the world at the time and what was going on with music and film. And um, I consider myself an author slash Beatles, you know, a Beatles author slash historian. When I look back at, you know, my favorite courses in high school and the courses I would always get A's in were history courses. I always loved history. Although I was an economics major in college, I did take some history courses and love those history courses. So, you know, I always was interested in history. And so I really like the album series books because I think they're kind of, you know, a nice, concise way to really learn so many important things about a particular album. And what's what's the name of the website again? Beetle.net. So it's www.beetle.net. No S in Beatles, just Beetle.net. One more time for the audience. Yes, it is www.beatle.net, N-E-T. In case you didn't hear it, that's Beetle.net. Uh, that's right. And hopefully, uh, you know, people who are listening to this will rush out and go to the website and, and order some of the books, be they digital or be they hardcover. If you order the books from the website, you can request that they be personalized, which I'll be happy to do. I also sign all of the books going from the website but i do not sign the digital books for some reason i haven't figured out how to do that all in t it'll happen in time there'll be a way right that's beetle.net i almost said beetle.com you'd think with no don't do that don't do that beetle.net you'd think with saying the web address about 
five times, I, I'd remember it. <laughs> it's Beetle.net. That's all right. I remember it because uh, it's my website. Anyways, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's great. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, a shout out not only to my uh, friends in Canada, but I know people from all over the world will be listening to this. And uh, uh, fun fact, as far as the Beatles in Canada and myself, uh, one summer while I was at camp in Maine, we went into Quebec. I went into a record store and I bought the Help Soundcrack Canadian Pressing. And, uh, and I still have that album in my collection. Beatles Canadian Records, pretty good. I'm not biased or anything. Yes, indeed. Not ah, biased. Fun stuff. Well, listen, I've enjoyed it again, and I'll be happy to come back and talk about other interesting topics. I'm sure we'd have a lot of fun with it, and just let me know when you want me back. And as long as your readers don't, or listeners, I mean, complain about having me too often, love to do it again. I don't think any of my listeners would ever complain about having too much Bruce Spies. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, you all have a great day, great evening, and may God bless, stay well, and all those other important things. Everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.